Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. For this week's episode, we're bringing you a recording of our recent event hosted by our IPF Atid Young Professionals Network, which focused on Israel's integration with the wider Middle East region. That program featured Hussein Ibish of the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington and our own policy advisor, Shira Efron. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I want thanks to everyone for joining us today, and thank you to our panelists for taking the time. My name is Karen Poirier. I'm a 2018 Charles Bronfman convener at IPF, uh, and during the day, I'm a vice president at Albright Stonebridge Group, a strategic advisory and commercial diplomacy firm where I help companies do business in emerging markets. We're excited to have this conversation today about Israel's regional integration with about 80 young professionals across the country. We want this conversation to be interactive. And so we will get to the audience questions throughout the conversation and certainly at the end. In the meantime, please do send us questions in the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. We'll also be polling the audience so we can get um, some of your thoughts shared with us uh, throughout the conversation. So without further ado, let me introduce our speakers. Dr. Shira Efron is a policy advisor at IPF. In parallel, she is a visiting fellow at the INSS in Tel Aviv and a special advisor on Israel with the Rand Corporation. Before joining INSS and Rand, Dr. Efron was a Middle East analyst at several think tanks in Washington, D.C., including the Center for American Progress and the Middle East Institute. She's a member of the board of directors of Forum Devora, which promotes women in, security, in the security establishment. Hussein Ibish is a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. He's a weekly columnist for Bloomberg and the National UAE, the UAE, and is also a regular contributor to many other U.S. and Middle Eastern publications. He has made thousands of radio and television appearances and was the Washington, D.C. correspondent for the Daily Star. Ibish uh, previously served as a senior fellow at the American Task Force on Palestine and executive director of the Hala Salam Maksud Foundation for Arab American Leadership. Thank you both for joining us today. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Dalia. Thank you uh, So I'd like to kick off the conversation with some questions. The first question uh, will be for Shira and then Hussein. Uh, in the second half of 2020, Israel made significant diplomatic inroads in the Arab world as it established official ties with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. How can these new relations between Israel and the Arab nations be leveraged to promote Israeli-Palestinian peace? Shira, over to you. Um, so again, thank you, uh, Karen, for this question. It's really good to be with all of you here, and especially with Hussein, who I, I really look forward to hearing what he has to say about this question. I think um, there's probably like the optimistic version, which I'll give first, and then maybe we can dive into the skepticism. So first of all, um, what you described, those um, normalizing ties, the inroads that Israel made, it's really an, an, a, a major diplomatic achievement, but uh, I would ca characterize it as something that it's was done uh, not really between Israel and those countries, but rather between the US and those countries. Um, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm all pro-normalization. I think it's what the Middle East needs more and more, but there's there was definitely like a transactional nature behind um, these agreements and the timing that they happened say this was a work in progress, it was only a matter of time, but the Trump administration with offering sweeteners, though those four countries would not have received otherwise, 
um, uh, definitely expedited the process. Uh, but it doesn't matter because still there's a positive reality and we can probably use these normalizing, uh, the, the normalization process to try to um, re-energize, I should say, the Israeli-Palestinian uh, process. And I think uh, initially the response, the Palestinian response to the um, to the normalization agreements was negative, not to all of them at the same degree, and we can talk about that. And Israel was, of course, excited and said, well, you see, now we normalize ties without making any prog progress on the Palestinian front, so we can say, oh, we don't need the Palestinians anymore. But I think now, a few months later, everyone on both sides basically understand that no matter what happens in the larger region, those people still are stuck here in the same small piece of land and they have to find a solution working together. So what does it mean? I guess, um, and we can speak about it, you know, uh, more in detail, but I guess what you can try to do is use um, different economic, political, um, diplomatic incentives with the already normalizing ties. So you had um, United Arab Emirates, the uh, Bahrainis, uh, Sudan, and put aside for a second, but Morocco is a very important country. And the old ones, um, Egypt and Jordan, bring them in to try to create, um, um, to energize both sides and create incentives for both Israelis and Palestinians to uh, move constructively toward, uh, let's say, some, some sort of a peaceful, process that would lead one day hopefully to a resolution but also try to bring in new other countries um that country the crown jewel what the one that we would call would be saudi arabia if you can build on the model of the israeli uae normalization which included israeli suspension of west bank annexation you know it's been less than a year but a few months ago we all basically, I think, depending on which side you were on, but we all fear that Israel was going to annex territory in the West Bank and make a two-state solution even less viable than we, we, we hope to maintain it, right? But it's, it's, it's really um, in a precarious situation. Um, maybe for normalization with Israel, with uh, Saudi, which Israel would seek most, um, Israel would agree to seize settlement activity or recommit to a two-state solution, which it hasn't done, uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu has not done since 2009. Um, so this, this, this is another one. Um, of course, there is, every time you speak about the Gulf, there is the financial dimension. Can you bring in um, Arab countries to support economic development? Uh, cross-border initiatives between Israelis and Palestinians that, that would demonstrate success stories. They would not be maybe transformational at the beginning, but they will um, demonstrate the potential uh, for success. Um, now, we, I, I'll let Sam chime in with, with the positive. I just don't know. I think all these things are possible. It would be hard for me to, be, to believe that they would just happen organically. Uh, because Israelis and Palestinians would decide to be constructive and those Arab countries that normalize ties with Israel would really care about this conflict um, to include it in future negotiations. So, so that's, 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 that's where I'm, I'm, I'm on it. Thank you, Shiran. Hussein, your thoughts? Okay, well, um, 
let me let me just respond to Shashira, who I thought gave a really um, interesting set of responses to this question. First of all, I I'm not so sure that these were all agreements mainly with the United States. I think the key one, the one between Israel and the UAE. Um, was largely really a bilateral agreement between Israel and the UAE. The UAE is very excited about its partnership with Israel, which which it sees eye to eye with in in lots of ways. Um, They agree, of course, on Iran, but also on Turkey uh, as a regional threat uh, and an ideological problem. They, They also, I think the UAE sees itself as a tech hub and as a, um, you know, as a, a, a very cutting edge country technically in the region, and they look for regional partners, right? And the only country that's doing the same kind of things and is doing does it better and is a generation, at least half a generation, maybe a generation and a half ahead of the UAE is Israel. There's no one else to partner with in the area. So they're, they're very, very keen on uh, the Israelis for reasons that have nothing to do with the United States. Then it is true they wanted the F-35s, which they're going to get. They wanted to repair relations with Democrats. They wanted to please Trump. There are many, many, many reasons that they they wanted to do. And I think also with Bahrain, it's not really about the United States. For Bahrain, it's Bahrain is, is driven primarily by uh, fear of Iran, Iran under the Shah and the and the Islamic Republic has a complete territorial claim on Bahrain, right? Uh, mainly it was under the Shah, he revoked it. But even people, officials in the Islamic Republic have reiterated this from the point of view of the Bahraini regime. They feel they're under a suspended death sentence and not from the Islamic Republic, but from Iran court, right? Iran, regardless of of the government. Who's doing the heavy lifting against Iran, especially Iran's proxies in the region? It's Israel, and in Syria, in Iraq, and potentially in Lebanon. So for Bahrain, getting closer to the Israelis is, is a no-brainer, and especially since it doesn't you know, bother the Americans at all. Now, when you bring in Sudan and Morocco, it's really much more about negotiations with Washington using leverage uh, using uh, Israel's leverage with Washington, right? In the case of Sudan, it was money and getting off the terrorism list. In the case of Morocco, it's all about Western Sahara. An article in, in Bloomberg about that today. You can't write about Morocco, Western Sahara, and the United States without refracting it through an Israeli lens, both in terms of the occupation and settlement and annexation angle, and also why did... Trump do this? Why why did he suddenly get interested in Western Sahara, a place he probably never heard of otherwise? Because of Israel. So uh, for Morocco and Sudan, I think that really is true. I think it's a lot less true of the UAE and and Bahrain, but it's complicated. Um, The Palestinian reaction, I want to come to this. So my feeling is that honestly, this set of normalizations, there is no direct path towards leveraging these normalizations to aid at the cause of a two-state solution. It, it's going to be, if it, if it works, it's going to be very indirect uh, because it, 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 it uh, de-incentivizes Israel to make concessions to the Palestinians. I mean, that's just a fact. This for the Palestinians is a disaster. And uh, it's a disaster. So largely their own making, 
right? They they have for the past you know almost decade as a national strategy have basically had the Arab Peace Initiative, which is the idea that the Arab states as a bloc would provide an incentive for the Israelis to come to terms with the Palestinians and add peace with the Arab states and then maybe with the Muslim states as well as a kind of uh, sweetener at the end of the process. And, uh, you know, obviously with the UAE agreement and then these others, that linkage is broken. First of all, there is no united Arab bloc. Secondly, the linkage between normalization and occupation is shattered, right? And it only becomes link. It becomes normalization for non-annexation, which is merely not taking a major step in the wrong direction. It doesn't even preclude new settlement activities, like you know the expanding Harhoma and things like that. Um, so it's really very limited in its uses for Palestinians, and and uh, it it kind of shatters their. They, they were sort of playing a game the Palestinian leadership. They really didn't have a national strategy. So they they used the Arab Peace Initiative as a substitute for national strategy. But of course, when your national strategy is going to be implemented and defined by somebody else, they could decide for their own reasons to reinterpret it or ditch it or change it, you know, without, without considering its impact on you. And that's exactly what happened. So I think maybe the way in which this is going to work to uh, the advantage of the peace process is force the Palestinians to come up with a national strategy to deal with Israel for the first time in a decade. They just haven't had one. And now that's exposed. It's completely exposed. Uh, The thing they used to pretend it was a strategy is no longer viable. So the first reaction was to pretend to want to have an election which I told everyone from day one would definitely not happen. And it certainly is not going to. And uh, you'll see all kinds of other excuses for uh, or, or substitutes for national policy. And the reason for this is they don't have a national leadership, right? The, the Fatah is, is, is a mayorship of an archipelago of West, West Bank cities. And Abu Mazin thinks of himself. Abbas thinks of himself as the president of the Palestinians, but he calculates like the mayor of Ramallah. And the same applies to to, uh, Hamas in Gaza. They don't calculate on on a national basis. They calculate on on preserving their little emirate in Gaza and trying to sneak back into the West Bank. Uh, Under such circumstances, it's very hard to have a national policy. And in fact, they don't have one. So if if this can kickstart a process whereby Palestinians face the reality that they are dealing with Israel one-on-one, that there is no regional dimension to this, that there is no Arab bloc to save them, there is nothing to save them, that they just have to negotiate a deal with the Israelis, that will be very good. One final thing. Normalization is good. We want states in the region to have normal relations. It's a given. It's a good thing by definition. But, and, uh, but, and Palestinians are afraid of normalization because they don't want the reality of Israel to be normalized and the reality of the occupation especially to be normalized. Fine. I think, as I have argued uh, a week ago, that they can really use the the normalization here as a as a leverage by saying right you you all you states arab and israeli want normal normalcy want normal relations you want to normalize normal you want to be normal that's great we want to be normal too 
we want normalcy, you know, and there's, you know, the, the great thing about normalcy is it could be realized in a single state, in two states, in a confederation, in all kinds of different ways. But I think everyone in the world knows what normalcy means for individual human beings, right? And the Palestinian situation in the occupied territories is not that. So I'll stop with that. Karen, can I comment just for a quick, quick? Yes, um, of course. Sorry. So Hussein, I, um, sorry, I, um, I didn't mean that the UAE and maybe in Bahraini also Israeli normalization and, and what has emerged as even warmer ties than we anticipate is not genuine. And there are not yeah, other know. reasons uh, for doing, including convergence of interests mm. on regional threats and a shared interest in being tech hubs and economic opportunities. But the timing mm. of when that happened had to do with the sweetness of the Trump administration. We know you had the back, the back channels existed for years. There were 300 to 500 Israeli tech companies operating in the UAE yeah. uh, through intermediaries before. So, I mean, and it's not a bad thing, but I actually give all kudos to the UAE for being really brave. They took a risk. They yeah. didn't know that they would not get pushed back. They didn't know that the Arab League would not condemn them. So in a sense, it turned out to be really good. But at the time, like the push for that to happen at the moment that happened, it had to do with investment from the Trump administration. I think they saw an opportunity to rationalize what they wanted to do. I knew two years before that they had decided to look to for it. a way to normalize with Israel. I could have told you that two years before they did it or at least. Yeah. Yeah. Two years. Uh, I think when the whole issue of annexation became a real problem for Netanyahu running on it on the election, and he didn't want to do it for Trump. You know, he wanted it to be a second term uh, question, not a first term question. I think this was a real opportunity for the UAE to say, right, if we come in and do this agreement on the basis that because of us, you don't annex. And that way we can also claim to be saving the Arab Peace Initiative, right? This is in a proof of concept. This isn't destroying the Arab Peace Initiative, at least right. from the point of view of the Arab states, it's proof of concept. And we are keeping the two-state solution alive by, prevent, by preventing uh, annexation. This was, I think, the opportunity they suddenly saw. Yeah, it, it definitely had to do with Trump. You're not wrong, but don't forget that opportunity. I think both uh, Netanyahu and uh, Trump were in a, a fix, and they saw an opportunity to do themselves a favor and and help these um, potential. Right, people. right, one hundred percent. But it's all on the UAE for seizing the opportunity. There were oh, yeah. many other voices against annexation, but they were oh, the yeah. ones smart enough to provide the ladder. This, That's and right. on a, just just two other quick points uh, to what you said. You know, I and many other analysts, right? We always said the incentive for Israel. Uh, would be normalization with 22 Arab states and all, of the, all in total 57 Arab and Muslim states. But you know what? Looking back now, and you're saying now this incentive uh, was withdrawn, but let's say that all, all this time when the incentive was hanging, Israel did not move an inch toward advancing peace. Right. So now I'm questioning, you know, all of us, we all assumed, we all said it, um, and it didn't incentivize. And my hope is that it would not disincentivize. First, 
the first few months, of course, 100 percent and the Palestinians like the Palestinians uh, uh, respond in a way that's really shot themselves in, in the foot. But uh, but I hope in the long run, maybe 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 some some positive could come out of it. Um, and that brings me to just the last thing you said. I 100% agree on the no national strategy, no leadership, a failure of leadership on the Palestinian point, which go- goes way beyond its ties with the Arab world. It goes to, mm. you know, this whole election saga just demonstrates. Everything. But, it's not, but it's not just that. It's economics. It's other things, right? It's so everything. I, as I was looking into the numbers, because at RAND, we were like, tried to look at the numbers and said, okay, Israel and the UAE start trading. So let's bring the Palestinians to trade. So then you look at it, it's like, what do Palestinians produce? And what export parts do they have? And Palestinians exported between 2017 and 2019, $30 million worth of goods to the UAE. It's nothing. It's nothing. Sorry, Karen, we're like having our own conversation. But then it's very difficult to think of these big strategic ideas when you come down to the facts. Yeah. How do you actually do it? And that's why I think we need to start from small success stories. Yeah, for that sure. tangible benefits. No, well, that, yes. I, I mean, I agree with that. Just because that's, fair, that's the think, only thing that's doable. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I think we're touching on a lot of um, various points of this conversation. I think it would be, first and foremost, great to hear from the audience um, mm-hmm. what they think. So um, I believe Dahlia just sent around a link. Uh, we're going to ask ask you to answer the poll with similar questions. Um, and the polling question is really about whether um, you agree or disagree with some of the statements. So please do click on the link. And once we get a critical mass of responses, we'll share them here. Um, looking forward to hearing your thoughts. But as you do answer those questions, I do want to continue this really engaging conversation um, while incorporating some questions we're getting. So um we spoke a lot about the Palestinians and, and leadership. So actually, I'm just going to go to this question and ask um, the Palestinian leadership has been virtually not unanimous in their condemnation of the Abraham Accords, yeah. uh, which they have rebuked as a betrayal of the Palestinian cause on behalf right. of the Arab states, as you all just noted. Um, so do you think this characterization is justified and what can be done to ensure that the future normal that future normalization agreements don't well, alienate Palestinians? And I'll I'll turn it over to you, Hussein. Uh, yeah, I mean it's just from a Palestinian point of view, it's justified in the sense that they they expected Arab states to behave differently, and they were led to believe they would at least in public, right? Um, and they were counting on the Arab states not to do this, to to at least, if not to follow through on the promise of the Arab Peace Initiative, at least not to break the illusion, right? Because this exposes the lack of a national strategy, which then, if you think about it, exposes the lack of a national leadership. And it really does sort of show how bare the Palestinian cupboard really is at this point. And that's very awkward for someone like uh, Mahmoud Abbas, um, and it's even awkward for Hamas, uh, even though they're kind of outside the leadership, but, you know, but they're, they're not completely. And, and so they have this weird relationship with the PLO and, uh, you know, which they're not part of, but they're critical of it. But then they want to, to they, they don't question its authority. They want to take it over, but they can't figure out how. And it's this whole complicated thing. So the ultimately you can certainly understand why Palestinians would regard this as a betrayal. From the point of view of Gulf countries, 
It's, uh, I, I, the UAE and Bahrain, of course, is not a betrayal in the sense that this is this is their national interest. They're acting for themselves, not for anybody else. They're putting themselves first. They're not doing anything, uh, you know, unusual or unreasonable. They're establishing diplomatic relations with a country with which which the Palestinians have recognized too. You know, in 1993, uh, the PLO recognized Israel. So and and they deal with it all the time. So in that sense, the Palestinian request them seems a little weird. And if you look at the um, interview that uh, Prince Bandar gave to Al Arabiya, the Saudi TV owned TV station uh, a few months ago, I mean, he's very blunt in giving the Gulf grievances towards the Palestinians, where it basically says, you know, you guys are morally right and the Israelis are morally wrong, but they have an effective leadership and you don't. We have our own national interests and we've put ourselves on the line for you time and again from their point of view. Palestinians wouldn't agree with that, but that's how they see it. And you, you never take our interests into consideration when you decide what to do. So at a certain point, we're, we're done you know, for prioritizing you. Now, for a Palestinian would say he never prioritized us. And you've always abused our issue and taken advantage, and this is all a plot and whatnot. But it can get a little pathological. Uh, you know, it can become a bit a bit paranoid when you expect other people to behave against their own interests. It's a little strange. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're, uh, it, it, uh, I mean, I think it's a matter of perspective on the justification. I, I think Palestinians can be expected to feel betrayed, but I think it only looks like a betrayal from their point of view. I think from a Gulf point of view and even a neutral point of view, it doesn't look much like a betrayal. It it looks like busting their, you know, the, the, the leadership level, busting their routine uh, and really exposing them in a very nasty way. And, and so that, I think, is really what, what drives a lot of the extreme anger at the, at the leadership level. Thank you, Hussein. And Shira, do you have anything to add? Well, I'll, I'll just say that I think um, the Palestinian uh, response to uh, the, the first country, right, the normalization, when the UAE announced it was really, I mean, so childish and flags were burned and they returned their ambassador and had yeah. issued all these threats. Um, but that also was built on really very difficult, intense relations between the Palestinian leadership and the Abu Dhabi, you know, the Emirates for, for quite a few years before. You notice that when Morocco announced, uh, and with Morocco, it's a different tie because they already had ties with Israel and sort of restoration, but there, there was no such response. Um, and it's because there are different parts of Morocco, exactly, and there are different relations with Morocco, and Morocco has a very important place also in Jerusalem, and ties are very, very different. So, uh, first of all, I think Palestinians learned that this was the, their first the initial response was very was really counterproductive for for yeah. their own sake, but also these things they come with their own issues, right? Not all yeah. countries the same. The PA has different relationship with each country, with Qatar, with Saudi, and stuff. I will tell you that what I'm hearing now, and this is, you know, it goes to the failure of leadership, the fact that really this, this defunct group of old men that <laughs> run this thing, the territory in the West Bank with very lim limited sovereignty, because we have to admit it, they're under occupation. So I want to put it, yeah. we have to put it like there. They don't have uh, ideal conditions to run their uh, people, their entity. But um, um, 
there are calls within the PA and some practitioners and some young politicians that are saying, listen, we have to be different. It's a matter of time. Everyone's going to normalize ties with Israel. And yes. we don't want to hear about it from the paper like we did about the UAE. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure we're included. Now, this doesn't solve the bigger issue that Hussein spoke about, that they need to have a, 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 a national strategy that includes a component that's bilateral vis-a-vis Israel. But that, in their mind now, has failed. So at least in the regional one, they're saying, make sure we're included and we will we will do something. Yeah. Uh, whether this materializes or not, I hope so. But I think they understand that failure in the Arab League <laughs> and um, not getting any condemnation and you have Egypt and Jordan and everyone else, it's like they're on their own, you know, in that, in, in that regard. They're on their own. And I, I, just, I think they know it now. It, it's really in their interest to face the fact that this is a now a, a, a localized problem, that it is a, an argument between uh, a very powerful group of about 7 million Jewish Israelis and a very unpowerful group of about 7 million Palestinians. And, and that's the reality. And it's going to be uh, hashed out between those people with all the asymmetry that exists. And that's that's the way it is. And pretending it's something else is not helpful to them. Right. But I will say, because I think there's a sense also definitely in Israel and other parts, we normalize ties, the strongest, definitely a regional power, probably the strongest regional power, right? You would argue middle power on many different other things, the technology and stuff. But, you know, we say the Palestinians are all alone. And I think they are. But mm-hmm. in terms of Israel's position with the Palestinians, Israel is also all alone. Big time. The Arab countries don't care. I mean, even those that say they care, they don't care because of they have other interests. Care. They, they don't care. The U.S. has other priorities, right? So some people care, but they definitely have other priorities. And then Europeans are already like also fed up and they can't keep bankrolling this thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, as someone who now lives in Tel Aviv, I will tell you, the Palestinians are not going anywhere. Yeah. So Israel can feel as powerful as it wants now and complain about well, the Palestinians and say that they're lost. But at the end of the day, Israel I mean, over time, this over time, this will isolate Israel in many, many um, pockets in the international community in the West where they have been welcomed since 1948. Increasingly, if this is the reality and it's going to be codified and, and systematized, uh, there are big chunks of the West who are not who are going to have a very negative reaction to this. Yeah. Uh, it's and very hard to know how far it will go. There's also like violence. Yeah. <laughs> no, there have been very quiet years, but this all hinges on Palestinian corporate collaboration with with being yeah. occupied. Of course. And uh, we you can't bank on it forever, and it's not the right. And more, it's morally very wrong, but. For, you know, you can't talk about rights here. So if you want to talk about like what's in Israel's interest, Jerusalem was on fire. I just got announced the Czech Jarrah. Again, you have a protest. Right. You have fire from Gaza. You have more terrorism attempts in the West Bank. I mean, it hurts Israel at the end of the day, even if Israelis don't want to talk about rights, which I think is, is important. It's an important conversation. Thank you both. And I think I think what I'm hearing is Palestinians are increasingly isolated and Israel is increasingly isolated and the trend is moving towards normalization, but we're all kind of alone here. Um, But I think one of the actors that we're missing from the conversation so far is the United States. I mean, the Trump administration um, gave a lot of incentives towards normalization, as you guys already covered. And now we have a new administration, the Biden administration, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how 
their policy towards normalization may change or not. Um, and, and just building on, on some of the comments you made, I, you know, Ambassador Martin Indyk in the first round of these series said, the United States is the only partner, third party that can really bring the two to the table. Do you agree that the U.S. still has a role to play here or has it lost its credibility? Um, lots of questions there, but I will turn to you, Sheila, to answer the first. Sure. So I'll start with the first one. I think the United States is still the most important one because it's the only one that actually brings, you know, the whole gravitas and it's the only one that Israel trusts. But the United States doesn't have to work alone. There is there is a there is a body. It's called the Quartet, which would let the U.S. not sort of not do it alone, share the burden, but they can still lead. You have a very active UN on that, and they're probably the most like equipped to deal with it at the moment. Um, you have the Europeans, you have the Russians. This is also an area where Russia and the U.S. can um, have some partnership if all parties wanted to do this. But only the United States, I think, can move this seriously if they really want it. So the U.S. is still needed, in my um, in my opinion, especially for the Israeli side. And I think the Palestinians also with the Biden administration, they 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 also understand that there's their um, approach to the U.S. under Trump, even though Trump did everything in his, in his power to uh, weaken the Palestinians and hurt them. Um, it, it was it was also counter, counterproductive on their part. Ooh. It's still early to say the Biden administration has been in office a little over like 100 years. Right. But judging based on their appointments of the people in dealing with the Middle East, uh, Barbara Leaf, Brett McGurk, they're not people that know this part of the world. Um, you know, there's the Gulf. They know um, Iraq, Syria. Syria. Uh, you have uh, Hadi Amar, who's great. He's a deputy yeah. assistant secretary, but his background is in economics. Yeah. Um, he, they didn't appoint. There's no ambassador yet. Um, there's no all this no middle level is not there. They're talking about the new and and what we're saying. What we know that they want to do is sort of fix some of the damage that Trump did to relationships between the United States and the Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. They want um, to have relationships that, it, that are independent and not go through Israel. So they're saying, well, let's reopen the consulate to the Palestinians that mm -hmm. uh, Trump uh, closed. Let's um, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, restore aid to the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, and there are different other things that they're doing. But on the normalization itself, I mean, the president, Biden, and, and every I think everyone in his administration agreed that normalization is a very good, uh, good thing. Um, and I think they would come on board if the opportunity presents itself. We don't see any evidence now that they're going to be proactive about it, like the, the right. Trump administration. And I think they're going to make a point of not offering any sweeteners. <laughs> so it doesn't look transactional. So and, and you might need those like you, you may need a U.S. incentive. And plus, and I let Hussein speak about this. Because Saudi is such a big player for both Israelis and Palestinians, but Saudi is in such a bad place now in Washington, and this is a bipartisan position, it would be very hard for the U.S. to bring Saudi out of the fold for a state, for an Israeli statement, recommitment to two-state solution. So I think it's going to be very challenging for them and not a priority. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. The U.S. is, is look, the, the U.S. is the only actor internationally that can play this role and that wants to play this role. It's not like there's a long line of competitors saying, let us do it, let us. And the only other country that's shown any interest in playing such a role is France. 
not even the whole EU, just France alone. And they can't. They don't have the heft. And they don't so, so it's pretty much the US or nothing. Um, and I think the US is better than nothing. <laughs> so and and it's still an American uh, interest. So I think I think it's going to continue. Look, um, I think the analysis that Shira gave of, of uh, where the Biden administration is, is exactly right. I think they're going to work very hard to get back to the status quo that Trump inherited from second term Obama, which was a disastrous one, but he managed to make it a, a lot worse. So they want to, you know, restore relations with the Palestinians. But there are there are some things that can't be done, like reopening the uh, PLO mission in Washington right now, uh, given the legislation, the Taylor uh, Force Act and other things that uh, would, would expose the PLO to uh, major liabilities in court cases, and, and they don't want that. So, you know, there it, a lot of damage has been done. Some of it's uh, reversible, some of it's not. And at the end of the day, the biggest lift they want to do is go back to a really bad situation, but one that isn't quite as bad as, as uh, the one Trump produced. It's not very ambitious, but if I were in the administration, I would not be urging them to be particularly that much more ambitious at this stage, because I don't think there's that much to work with on either side. I mean, I would talk, uh, as Shira said, about doing a lot of little things on the ground and doing a lot of uh, prep work and building and, and pressuring both sides not to make matters worse. I think clearly letting the Israelis go forward in, in Har Homa and Sheikh Jarrah and places like that is, is, is absolutely crazy. So you've got to stop that. While you're rebuilding uh, relations with Palestinians, the worst excesses of the settler movement have to be restrained or you go, the whole thing is going to get to even more out of hand. But, more, but other than that, it's really a long-term process, right? So um, what I, uh, I, I, I agree also about... Um, normalization. Uh, I, I don't think the Saudis want to make this decision right now. And if they can avoid making it, they will. Uh, what the administration wants much more is an end to the war in Yemen. That's what the Saudis want to give them. The Houthis don't want to let the Saudis go. <laughs> they've got them by the toe and they've got no incentive to let them leave. So it, it, this, I think, is the big ask of the Saudis. They made a lot of progress with, with the administration. They ended the Qatar boycott. They released Lujan Hatlal and a bunch of other uh, prisoners. They, uh, you know, that the Khashoggi matter was put on the table. The facts were put out there, et cetera. I think Biden tried to put that behind the United States with some success. But there's still lingering anger among many Democrats and some internationalist Republicans, but a lot less. And it, I think it's clear that a lot of progress has been made. Something more is needed. Um, but I think both Washington and uh, Riyadh would rather have it happen in Yemen than with regard to Israel. Yes, if there's an opportunity to go forward, sure, the administration will, um, will take it. And they're not going to ruin things by withholding the F-35s from the UAE. I said from the beginning, they're going to get these weapons. I mean, no question. It's going to take six or seven years to create a model just for them and give it and all that. But, but eventually they'll get it. They're not going to put Sudan back on the terrorism list that Sudan has no business being on in the first place. They should have been taken off immediately. Um, there was a revolution in Sudan um, on its own merits. It shouldn't have been part of a negotiation at all, but it was. The interesting thing is in Western Sahara, right? Trump made, I mean, Morocco has not agreed to, in spite of what the Trump administration said, Morocco has not committed 
to a full restoration of diplomatic relations with Israel. They committed to a re-engagement with diplomatic relations with Israel. Uh, during the heyday of the Oslo process, they established a liaison office in Rabat for Israel and for Morocco in Tel Aviv. And those were closed in 2000 at the height of the violence of the Second Intifada, the way the Israeli trade mission in Doha was, was closed also. I mean, there, were a lot, there was a lot of s- diplomatic relations that were sub-ambassadorial level, sub-embassy level, but, but real you know, in the Arab world that Israel lost in the in the in 2000 because of the violence of the Second Intifada. The Moroccans agreed to restore those offices, and they have restored them, but not to go further, because what they wanted was an American recognition of Moroccan sovereignty in Western Sahara. It's very analogous to Israel's claims in the West Bank, right? It's, it's a territory, it was seized by war, there's a lot of settlers there, and it's an annexation, in defiance of the United Nations and in defiance of, of the, you know, uh, the Fourth Geneva Convention and what have you. Okay, um, lots of parallels, probably closer than Cyprus, the closest thing to the, to the West Bank that you find anywhere else, right? Uh, Trump doesn't care about the UN Charter and international law and Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, Paragraph 7. He doesn't heard of these things, he couldn't care less about them. Biden's position is torn. On the one hand, he's for normalization because it's exactly what Democrats want U.S. allies to do, to normalize. And they want the, the, if there is a guiding principle for the Biden administration at home and abroad, it's a return to regular order, right? Regular order. That's that's what they're fascinated with that. So normalization is regular order on steroids. Right. Uh, but if you have to uh, facilitate that by breaking the most basic aspect of the UN Charter, which is the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by war, the main thing that prevents international relations from being a law of the jungle and might making right. And if countries can just seize territory, Russia, what are you going to say to Russia and Crimea? Why can't you? Why can't they have Crimea? Well, the UN Charter. Well, other than that, you know, so it, it, it's already there's a problem with uh, the Golan Heights in East Jerusalem. In this case, the Moroccans did not take Trump's um, tweet. It was a tweet recognizing Moroccan sovereignty in Western Sahara as fixed U.S. policy. They only agreed to reopen the liaison offices uh, because while they were very happy with it, they wanted to know before they go further, they want to hear that this is a transferable policy change from Democrats to Republicans, and that this is fixed. And they're waiting to hear that from the Biden administration, and they're not hearing it. Instead, the Polisario uh, front and the Algerians are all happy that uh, it's not being reiterated. The Moroccans are getting more and more nervous about what they're seeing. And basically, Biden is kicking the can down the road. He's not making a decision. So his, his enthusiasm for sweetening uh, these normalizations with extraordinary gestures, like recognition of annexation of occupied territory, not in, in the West Bank, but in on the other side of Africa, um, is not there right now. Uh, what in the end they do about that, I don't know. Uh, they might just never do anything and leave it as is. Awesome. Thank you both. Um, I have one more question before we turn to 
the Mentimeter results and audience Q&A. Uh, and just briefly want to hear from you all uh, with these new diplomatic relations that are happening. Does that sign that signifies a growing acceptance of Israel in the region politically and economically, but do they also reflect or signify a similar sense of acceptance of Israel and Israelis at the civilian level? Hussein, your thoughts first. Um, well, I, I think uh, in some places, yes, and in some places, no. In the UAE and Bahrain, especially in the UAE, the UAE um, peace and partnership, budding partnership with Israel, is the breakthrough in the Arab world that Israelis have been waiting for since 1948. More that because the, the peace with Egypt has been cold and distant. And the, even though relations are probably at a government level are better today than they have been since the death of Sadat between Egypt and Israel, but, but still there is no enthusiasm in Egyptian civil society and, and even in much of the government for Israel. Jordan, yes, it's a better relationship, but Jordan is not a hub. And even in Jordan, there's a lot of tension. In the, U, the UAE, and particularly Abu Dhabi and Dubai, these two city-states, are the first places in the Arab world which, which are eager to embrace Jewish Israelis as friends and at, at the people-to-people -people level. And they are also hubs for Arabs in the whole region. So this is the first opportunity for ordinary Israelis to go and meet the Arabs on friendly terms in an Arab country en masse and be very welcome. And I think that's a potential game changer in uh, Arab-Israeli relations in the long run, uh, because Abu Dhabi and Dubai are now places where ordinary Arabs can meet ordinary Israelis in without leaving the region, right? Uh, in a friendly person-to-person -person basis, without an occupation, without a cold peace, without a legacy of wars, you know, that anger people, the uh, UAE was not part of that. I think it's the long-term impact of this should be very positive, and it could be very positive, and it bears watching really carefully. Share your thoughts. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I agree 100% with uh, Hussein. I think it's really interesting, you know, I think from uh, Israeli friends that have, you know, been traveling to the Gulf for years, they really report a change. You know, I always go with the U.S. passports. So it doesn't matter, but they always report a change. They report a change. That they said that previously they would be like going in and meeting secretly. Mm -hmm. um, and a day after the normalization, even government officials, but also just like business people would like parade them in restaurants and introduce them to everyone. It's like a, it's, it's a source of pride now. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really, really important. This is something that I also I think... Um, um, I appreciate in the actual wording of the Abraham Accords themselves that they say that they are recognizing the Arab and Jewish peoples are descendants of a co common ancestor, Abraham, and inspired in that spirit to foster a Middle Eastern reality of coexistence. So, so it's really something that's very, very deep and something that's very, very missing uh, from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because the whole narrative of the Palestinians is that Israel is a you know, Zionism is a colonial movement, right? That really has no right here. It came from Europe. Uh, they pathologize they each other, yeah. And I think this is something that really should be a framing principle. And by the way, also for Israelis, I mean, growing up here in this country, I will tell you, we were taught in the textbooks that, you know, this was a, a land with no people for peoples without a land, with no land. So this was also a very wrong thing. 
I just on Jordan and Egypt, I think we, I mean, I agree, I agree with Hussein, but I think we even have to correct. Ties with Egypt are even not that good on the government level. What they're good is at the military level. Okay. Between the militaries, they're very good secure. And with Jordan, it's exactly the same. It's just military to military. The relationship between the king and Netanyahu. Oh, yeah. I mean, There's a awful. lot of tension between Israel and Jordan. And I, I meant, I, I really had the security hard. thing in mind with, with Egypt. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and with, the, with Jordan also, the military to military ties are very important. The military establishment in Israel understands the importance of Jordan. The government, I mean, yeah. Netanyahu, no. what's happening with the king, with the family, it's, uh, it's, really, it's really disturbing. Right. Um, and I think it trickles down to the people because uh, it's, there's very, the anti-Israel sentiment in those countries, even though they've had peace for a long time with Israel, uh, it's pretty high. And the Jordanians so fear that the Israelis are trying to transfer authority over the um, holy places in East Jerusalem to as a, to dangle this in front of the Saudis. Saudis don't seem to be interested. I don't know the extent to, to which um, Israeli officials have been proposing transferring this thing that is in the peace agreement, but uh, it's a real fear in, in Jordan. Annexation was considered an existential threat. To Jordan, right? They were the biggest winners of the Abraham Accords, and other than the three signature signatory countries, the U.S., um, UAE, and Israel, they, the big winner was was Jordan. So they're not happy with the Israelis at all, with Netanyahu at all. Right. On, on so many and I will tell you, the Jordanians know, and they know very well. And I will give a plug to a study that we did for RPF, looking at alternatives to the two-state solution, and we include the Jordanian option there, basically that Jordan is Palestine. And it's not because it's our idea; it's because the, and the Jordanians know that there are Israeli officials in the current yeah. Israeli government and in Knesset that this, see this. This is the real homeland for the Palestinians. Right. Jordan would collapse and the Palestinians will take over. And yeah. that is something that those Israelis think would not be a bad thing. Yeah. So the Jordanians are scared for a reason. Of course. I think it's very interesting that you guys point out that the UAE's response, civilian response to Israelis is so different. I mean, when we saw um, the gas deals and energy deals between Egypt and, and Jordan and Israel, it was a completely different response from civilians. Yeah. I mean, there were protests across Jordan um, over these agreements. So right. very, very interesting. And as you said, maybe a starting point for normalization. I want to turn over to the polling results. Um, and Dahlia, if you can post it up on the screen and maybe we can re react a little bit to the response. So as you all see here, we asked the um, audience to indicate the extent to which they agree or disagree with the following statements. Um, general moderate agreement that the Abraham Accords signify that much of the Arab world is ready to accept Israel and even embrace it as a partner and that the Israeli-Arab conflict is over. Uh, and then the second one where there's a lot, a little bit more agreement, expanding Israel's regional integration serves to benefit both Palestinians and Israelis, including Arab citizens of Israel. And third, overall, the Abraham Accords has minimal impact on the state of Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's pretty much folks don't agree with that. So um, what are your reactions, Shira, to these? Answers. What do you think? So I have to. Um, I. I mean, I. I think. You know, it's very difficult to. I think it's too early to answer with certainty. Uh, what would be the right answer? I, I'm with, with 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 the participant in the hope that two is the one, right? I just don't know that it would. Um, um, 
it would just happen organically or maybe we should say it's a short-term and long-term thing. Uh, in the short term, um, it's hard for me to see how it serves both Israelis and Palestinians, unless we're talking about what Sin spoke about before, which is a wake-up call for the Palestinians to develop a strategy, that understanding the time is not, not necessarily on their side. So it's more like with like a tough love, <laughs> getting the message. Uh, it's hard for me it's hard for me to see this materializing into something that's beneficial for both, definitely for Israel, but not for Palestinians in the short term, but hopefully, yes, in the long term. Yeah, I mean, I don't see it as love of any kind, but uh, t- tough, <laughs> it's certainly tough. Uh, um, all right. So, yeah, I mean, I think what's most important is that on question two, it's it's too early to tell. Right. I think there's um, there's a definite potential for Palestinian citizens of Israel to to benefit from this opening they, they you know there is there's this initial impulse in uh, the UAE to to deal with to want to deal with Jewish Israelis to go to the center of power in Israel and all that stuff I think over time uh, and there'll be openings you know that there is a honeymoon right now between the Israelis and the Emiratis and that's not going to last there's going to become a desengano at some point people are going to realize that they're not they're all their greatest uh, wishes are not being um, fulfilled and they can't be and at that point I think there's a real opening for the Palestinian citizens of Israel to to pick up some of the slack um, so we'll, we'll see as for the Palestinians in the occupied territories I I think it's you know it could go either way and at this point I do think the Abraham Accord has had a minimal impact on the state of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the main impact is to reveal the underlying reality, which is that this has been for a long time, a local conflict uh, without much regional and international. um, uh, It has a lot of regional and international significance, but not a lot of regional and international um, engagement in the sense of determining the outcome either way. It's it's between these two groups. And and that uh, I think is was as true a year ago as it is today, but I think it's more obvious today. But I don't think it's changed anything fundamental. Thanks, but I think I would agree yeah. with that as well. I, mean, I, just, I, I agree with that also, but just so we're not agreeing on everything um, and it's not boring. <laughs> I'll just say, no, it is a local conflict and it's 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 an ethnic conflict and it's it's a conflict between... You know, two peoples, there's a narrative issue and it's here and it's very domestic and it's also confined to a very small area. Yeah. But there's a very strong international component and that's yeah. in, the, in the funding level. If they, It's mostly the Europeans now because the U.S. has not been involved in funding Palestinians for uh, four years almost. Um, if, the, if the Europeans were not bankrolling the Palestinian Authority, and there was not so much... Um, aid going to Gaza, and I will say this because let that sink in first, 80% of Palestinians receive some form of international aid, 80%. It would have never been able, this would not be sustainable. Um, well, this whole but- idea of an independent Palestinian authority that's supposed to be a state one day, but there's international funding that's supporting it. Israel would have had to provide they education would have services. Paid. And yeah. And Israel doesn't want to pay for education and health of, you know, uh, what what are we talking about? Six million Palestinians? Yes. No pay. 
yeah, I mean, I, I understand that. You can say all of this enables the occupation to continue, but um, there are, uh, of course, there are other ways of keeping territory without keeping people. You can throw people off their land. That's happened at least twice in the recent history of this conflict on a fairly large scale. And uh, I think we've exited a world in which that's not thinkable anymore. I think we're now back in a world where that's thinkable again. <laughs> frankly, yes. it's it's uh, and and I th I think one of the biggest lessons Palestinians need to learn, uh, along with embracing normalcy as an answer to normalization, is whatever you do, the biggest threat to you is your own violence. Because if if you were to give into widespread violence, it would give. Um, you know, annexationists in Israel, a potential excuse to get you out under the cover of chaos. It's been done twice before. There's no reason it can't be done again. We, uh, you know, 10 years ago, we were in an international uh, environment where I don't think that was possible. But yeah, in the current one, why not? Yeah. Really, who's going to do anything about it? So, so what must be done? I think Palestinians have to be extremely careful not to provide that excuse in the West Bank, extremely careful, or I think the chances of it happening are, you know, greater than 50%. Uh, and that's a grim thing to say, but I think it is. And I also think the idea that the Israeli army wouldn't carry out such orders is now fanciful. There may have been a time where, where there was enough of a sensibility, but that's clearly not the Israeli army that exists now. No, no, no. And I think it's not even, I mean, you look at it, but, you know, on the one hand, the use of force, you could argue that it's only uh, you, your this equation that you portrayed is true, but it's purposely true in the in the West Bank, right? Because yes. in Gaza, no, Israel it, basically it facilitates the, the payment of, I don't have a better term, protection for Hamas, yes. right? So they fire a few rockets in Israel, pays them and facilitates those suitcases of cash from Qatar. Qatar uh, they, don't, they don't drive themselves, those suitcases, let's say. But it's, uh, but um but in terms of the fire instructions for soldiers, we saw this with the with the uh, March of Return demonstrations in Gaza. Um, there was much more heavy use of force than we of anticipated. Course. And this was Gadi Eichenfeld, who was the chief of staff, who was not uh, yeah. a, a trigger-happy person. Yeah. yeah, he's not an extremist, and yet it happened, right? Exactly. So I agree with you. I think... I think um, these things take on a logic of their own. You know, you don't have to go into this situation with that intention in order to be end up being the one who actually does it. And once it happens, there's no reversing. There's no people leaving and coming back. <laughs> that does not happen. Almost all the Palestinians who, who fled or were expelled in, in 47, 48, left thinking they were coming home in, in a few weeks. It didn't occur to them that... People don't go back to their homes. Whoever wins, that, that's about who rules. But the idea that we don't go home is not in their frame of reference. You know, it, it certainly needs to be now. Sorry, Karen. It's, it's all right. It's okay. Um, so I, actually, your comments are a perfect way to segue. We're going to open it up to the questions, and there's quite a few. So um, I'll try to merge some here and there. Uh, but one of the questions you mentioned, Kazi, you mentioned Qatar, is um, what do Israel's relations with Qatar look like at the moment, particularly in the wake of the Abraham Accords and the end of the GCC crisis in the past year? How do Qataris envision their role in the conflict going forward, particularly in Gaza? Either one of you, whoever wants to take it. 
Oh, I'll I'll be happy to talk about that. All right. So so Qatar, I I think it's really important to note that in the Gulf, before last summer, before the Abraham Accords, the UAE normalization agreement, the highest point Israel's diplomatic relations in the Gulf had ever reached was in Qatar with the with the um, Israeli trade mission in Doha that existed between. 98 and 2000, or was it 97 and 2000? I think it was 98, 2000. But anyway, it was closed again, like I, like the liaison office with Morocco in, in the context of the violence of the Second Intifada. But I think it's very clear that uh, Qatar, at least at that point, in its general drive to be friendly to everybody and to be a mediator and whatnot, um, was very keen on developing relations with the Israelis. And I think there's a part of the Qatari mentality that is very frustrated that it was the UAE and not Qatar that took the plunge with the Israelis. On the other hand, Qatar's um, regional profile has changed somewhat. With or without the boycott, Qatar has become much more joined at the hip to Turkey in in a, a vertically integrated, Sunni Islamist alliance um, led by Turkey with Qatar as much more clearly the junior partner. And uh, so their their dependency on Turkey uh, grew during the boycott, but also their ideological merger, well, not merger, but their ideological affiliation with Turkey has grown independently since the late 90s, reinforced by the boycott. I think their, their space, therefore, uh, as long as the boycott was there, there was also a need to placate Iran because they were dependent on Iran, not just for access to the oil field that they rely on for their income, but also for overflight rights that they were paying the Iranians for. They couldn't use Saudi airspace, Emirati airspace, so they had to go over Iran. They had to pay them money, etc. Um, that's over. Right. So they still have to have working relations with Iran, but they don't have to tread as carefully. They, they do have to tread very carefully with the Turks. I don't think right now uh, their international position has really dug into the Brotherhood movement, really dug into the partnership with Turkey, gives them the bandwidth under current circumstances to open up to the Israelis. But I think they're ready to do it as soon as the regional environment allows for it. Because that, that think that idea that that they want to be friends with everybody is still there in in the Qatari uh, mentality. They they kind of genus faced in a way. Yeah, I'll just add to that that I think what Hussein said is is exactly correct. But with the, if you you may know that the last uh, round of hostilities between Israel and Hamas was in 2014, but since then every summer we've been ex- ex- anticipating uh, escalation. In 2018, we were like this on the verge of another war, and really Qatar came to the rescue. And the idea was that they would um, help provide uh, funding to calm the situation down in Gaza, humanitarian support. It Maybe was the form of. Yeah. yeah, it was like for poor families, 100,000 poor families, and those were really poor families. The numbers were uh, submitted. But also, and this is something we have to talk about, there's a lot of like capacity building money mm-hmm. that goes directly to Hamas. Mm-hmm. All of the workers of um, the Qatari uh, embassy or consul building in uh, Gaza is, are all Hamas employees. Um, and Israel uses it. Israel benefits from mm-hmm. it. Um, I mentioned the suitcases. You know, at the beginning, they would have actually come through Ben-Gurion 
uh, airport, Sukis yeah. is for dollars, but in Gaza, yeah. they use shekels. So who do yeah. you think would convert those? And those suitcases, someone had to drive them to Gaza. And this is money that goes directly to Hamas. But it also really helped Qatar, I think, because at the time, the rift in the Gulf, again, one of the brainchilds, I think, of uh, Saudi adventurism, right? It's yeah. like, well, let's start to boycott Qatar. Let's start to yeah. strangle it. So also they were dependent on Turkey for for imports. It's a landlocked country. They had to trust mm-hmm. someone. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, when Qatar came to the aid of Gaza and Israel could tell Kushner or whoever, well, we know you have their issues with Qatar because your friends in the Gulf tell you, but they really help us with Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really benefited Qatar also. And right. it would be interesting to see how long uh, this lasts. You know, the Qatari uh, envoy to Gaza, Imadi, he, mm-hmm. I mean, now it's COVID, but he hang out at, hang out in Jerusalem and it tell me, meets everyone. And there's great appreciation for their efforts here. Mm-hmm. Um, the irony is, is that, <laughs> you know, you do strengthen Hamas. Yeah. And Hamas, uh, whether you think they're here to stay or not, it's... Uh, it's also a ter- it's not only but it's also a terrorist movement. Um, so uh, and and you don't uh, strengthen in the same way your uh, very defunct but uh, at least nonviolent uh, peace partner. Right. I mean, look the the uh, the Qatari money that you're describing is at it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say it's at the request of Israel and the United States. It's at their behest, not just with their permission. They are pleased by it. Washington is is happy to give someone has to transfer money into Gaza so people can eat. Because otherwise they don't eat. And that would be an impossible situation. And the Israelis would have to ship in food and it would be a, no one else wants to do it precisely because they will be strengthening Hamas when they do that. So Qatar is the country that can afford it, that's willing to do it, that finds it politically beneficial to strengthen this Muslim Brotherhood uh, movement in, in Gaza. And it doesn't, that, you know, doesn't, isn't bothered by the idea that they'll be uh, strengthening Hamas. So it's, you know, everybody wants the Qataris to do this. Uh, you know, there's no way the UAE is going to do it. No way. No way. Although aid to the people of Gaza, I mean, these are European countries that don't speak with Hamas. Aid goes to Gaza to project. That's another story. No, but we're talking about paying. Yeah, but we're talking about paying Gaza, you know, employees of Hamas. We're talking about paying the civil servants they hired, their own patronage network, funding their patronage network, right? That's not something that the Norwegians, the donors, uh, you know, or or the Arabs, the other Arabs are going to do. Forget it. No way. But uh, yeah, I mean, sending humanitarian aid, yes, of course. So um, thank you both. That's very enlightening. I wasn't aware of all these different ties. So um, just I want to get to one more question for the both of you. So I'm going to merge a couple here, uh, just drawing on some themes that I'm seeing here. So um, we talked a bit about Egypt and Jordan and kind of the, the relations being predominantly security focused and such, but is uh, do they have a role to play in terms of, um, again, relations with Palestinians and, and a peacekeeping effort? And in parallel, um, the UAE here has emerged as the de facto leader, uh, leader of the Abraham Accords Quartet, so far seems to have prioritized economic and business ties with Israel. With Israel. Uh, do they have a role to play in terms of encouraging Israel to pursue a two-state solution? I know you both have said it's kind of more of an isolation than it is a, a mm. promotion of 
relation of, of peace, but is there something that these other countries who have important ties with Israel and um, do? You want me to start or uh, Shira? Whoever wants to start. I'll, I'll, start. I'll start. I mean, look, yes, I think the answer is yes to all those questions. Yes, they have an important role. Um, Egypt has a very important security role when it comes to Gaza and and um, with regard to both Israel and the Palestinians, Egypt is a significant player and they can and should play a constructive role. Jordan even more so, right? Jordan on two fronts. Number one, in terms of their uh, the fact that the, the second biggest group of Palestinians, um, uh, you know, if you exclude the Palestinian citizens of Israel, the biggest group uh, is in uh, the occupied territories. The second biggest group is in Jordan, right? And, and the Jordanians also very importantly are the custodians of the Muslim and Christian holy places in, uh, in occupied East Jerusalem. This is a very important role, right? So uh, the, I think the Jordanians really have an, a very important, very, very important role to play practically and politically in uh, facilitating things. And I, I, it's really, um, I, don't, I, I don't understand what the Israeli government thinks is going to happen uh, with Jordan if they go ahead and annex large chunks of the West Bank. I, I don't know what they expect the Jordanian reaction to be, but uh, it, it will not be pretty. And um, it's not something I think that, that they can really live with. So um, I think it's very important. Uh, as for the UAE, look, right now, um, and, and Bahrain, especially the UAE, they're, as I say, they're in a honeymoon with the Israelis, and they're very, very excited. All of them are very excited. Right. But there will come a time sooner rather than later that that wears off, and they start to think, well, it's, life is more complicated, this is more complicated. And I think there's a good chance they will come to a point for whatever set of reasons that they're going to want to prove that they haven't abandoned the Palestinians. They're going to want to prove that this business about preventing annexation was not just a rationalization, was not an excuse for uh, abandoning the Palestinians to court in order to serve their own interests, right? But, but that they still do care about a two-state solution because they need a two-state solution, right? It's not like uh, necessarily it has to be altruistic, right? But as long as the Palestinian issue is not resolved, uh, it's a, a very combustible variable, in the region. So I think there is a chance that if Palestinians are patient, right, and look for that opportunity, that they will find a chance to use the, the, these new ties to their benefit. And, and there's nothing they can do to stop it, right? So either you just ignore it completely, or you try to get what you can out of it. Now, the only sensible thing to do is the second thing. Uh, you try to you know make the best of about you lemonade, right? That's the classic uh, uh, metaphor. Is you get lemons, you make lemonade. I think they have to look for that opportunity, and and I could make fanciful scenarios about how they could do it or counterfactual ones, but I think the opportunity will come sooner rather than later to try to find that opportunity. It might be kind of limited. It might not go to ending the occupation, but if it's substantial and tangible, you take it. Shara, what do you think? Last, you have the last word. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with Hussein. I think there are two things. This one is like very, uh, you know, we, we, we should differentiate between Jordan and Egypt 
that are, they're both really important countries, but they're countries with no money. <laughs> and, uh, so um, it's hard for them to help with, you know, funding and with aid and with different consortium and uh, story economic activity and businesses because they need all that stuff themselves. Um, but Egypt um, it doesn't have a good PR, I think. And also when talking about human rights and stuff, it, it has bad rap, rap in Washington. But I think Egypt can do a better job for itself marketing how important it is at maintaining um, you know, this sort of hudna, the ceasefire, the mostly ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, with, that without Egypt, it wouldn't be possible. And Egypt has a really strong role in this. And I think um, capitalizing on it and showing, inserting its role and how, excuse me, and how important it is um, would be very beneficial for Egypt, but also for uh, Israelis and Palestinians. Um, at the same time, when we talk about Jordan, Jordan should take advantage. It has such a soft spot. The U.S. has such a soft spot for Washington, for Jordan. And this is sort of across different government agencies. I mean, it's State Department, especially under the Biden administration, but before traditionally, right? Like the Pentagon, it's Jordan, 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 sort of the baby of the Middle East that we have to keep stable. So I think if Jordan comes to the U.S. and says, like, listen, we need the commitment for a two-state solution because basically the alternative is our collapse, which is what stands on the line. Uh, and each Jordan should do a lot of, you know, soul-searching and how it run, they run their own country. But the Palestinian issue is definitely a threat for them. Um, they can use that. In terms of the other uh, Arab countries that can in, uh, provide funding, it's both to aid to... Um, Gaza to the Palestinians in general, but I think there's also a U.S. opportunity. You know, in December, Congress passed the Middle East Partnership for Peace Act. It's 250 uh, millions in funds that to like uh, invest in people-to-people um, -people activities and uh, business develop, you know, economic development of the Palestinian territories. But the idea was always to have it international. It wasn't. Right. It was never supposed to be a U.S. alone uh, act. And I think this is a way for Arab countries with money, by the way, also European countries, to add to that. And people-to-people -people activities, yeah, they're limited, hard to scale up, but those are definitely needed here on the ground and have completely disappeared. So I think this could be, you know, small, but a very tangible um, and successful effort that can be promoted with the help of these countries. I mean, all of that stuff is possible, but I think the U.S. has to take the lead in stopping the parties from making matters worse. If they keep doing yeah. crazy things, that make matters worse. It's it's very hard to do the little, you know, cumulative yeah. ground building stuff. So, you know, right. violence. You mentioned, you mentioned powerful mod, the settlement. Exactly. Uh, an announcement is expected in the next few weeks. So, uh... yeah. you know, Washington's been blocking that for, uh, you know, 25 years. Uh, so they, we know they can. They just they have to put their foot down. Yeah. Great. Thank you both. So in summary of everything I've heard, I think there's a small wins that we can achieve in the, in the coming months with these normalizations, especially uh, on the people to people right. level and leveraging some of these uh, normalized ties. Mm -hmm. I'm going to end it with that positive note and say, you know, hopefully the U.S. will play a more um, constructive role in the coming uh, years under this administration. 